Listener Production. We need to have explicit conversations with young people about what consent is, what not consent is, what this means. We need to embed empathy in the way that they engage in sexual situations so that this isn't some confusing thing they have to, you know, call back on their PDHP lesson, but an inherent trait in themselves that they would never put their own sexual entitlement above the desires of another person. So that is Chanel Contos, who became world famous when she made an Instagram post that unleashed thousands of horror stories about sexual abuse and coercion in elite private school circles. From there, she started this Teach Us Consent movement, which petitioned for better education about consent in our schools. And the amazing thing about this story is that our politicians actually listened to her and implemented consent training across our schools. Now Chanel Contos is working with the former Prime Minister Julia Gillard in her Global Institute for Women's Leadership. It's been an incredible journey and Chanel Contos is our guest in this episode of The Briefing. That interview in just a moment. First, here are today's big news headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Tuesday, the 12th of October. There's been a breakthrough on the government's signature housing policy. The $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund is set to pass Parliament this week after a deal brokered with the Greens. To get the Greens' support for the housing fund, the government had to agree to an extra billion dollars of direct spending on affordable housing, and that's on top of another $2 billion back in June. Today, the Greens have secured an additional $1 billion that will be spent this year Um, directly on public and community housing. That's the Greens leader, Adam Bant. Yeah, so this has been a really interesting political story, Katrina. We covered it three weeks ago here on The Briefing and uh, we spoke to Max Chandler-Smith, the Greens housing spokesperson, and this is the story where the Greens were saying we want a rent freeze for two years and then limits on rent increases in exchange for our support of Labor's $10 billion housing fund. Now, as we suspected at the time, A rent freeze would be very difficult to bring in for a federal government because it's a state issue and they haven't been able to get that up. But what they have been able to do is get extra direct spending. So the reason I say direct spending is that the $10 billion in Labor's plan is actually money that's just borrowed and then invested and they spend the earnings of that money on housing. So the $10 billion doesn't get spent directly on housing. It becomes an investment fund for smaller amounts of spending, about half a billion dollars a year. So the Greens have been able to say, well, that's not enough. Give us $3 billion direct spending and we'll support your bill. That's very clever. So under that, it's it's something like 30,000 uh, new and affordable social homes which will be built. But a lot of people are saying, look, two questions. First of all, can the industry cope with these additional bills mm. and what real difference would... 30,000 homes make to the national housing crisis anyway. Yep, that's exactly right. Economists are saying there's too many bottlenecks in the construction industry to actually get these buildings built. And um, we've seen around 400,000 new migrants come into the country in the last year. So it's still a massive undersupply. Well, for weeks now, there's been huge pressure mounting over the future of Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Yesterday, she returned to a grilling after going on a two-week European holiday 
and she was defiant, refusing to step down as leader of the party. I believe I'm the best person because I believe that we have the plans, uh, the policy plans for this state. Yeah, I listened to that press conference yesterday, Katrina, and she seemed really strong and defiant. It really did sound like she had a good holiday and she came back with some energy and said, well, look, uh, in 2015, I led this party to government. Um, Before that, we were down to just eight seats in the parliament and I'm not going anywhere. I'll be taking the party to the next election. Yeah, this was a a very fiery version of the Queensland Premier and I think some of the fire in the tank had to do with she was followed by journalists over to Italy where she was staying in a hotel. They had to call security, her and her partner, to get rid of them. Um, the opposition in Queensland has been comparing her overseas trip to ScoMo heading off to Hawaii, but unlike that, we weren't in a natural disaster at the time. Uh, the Premier yesterday saying two reasons why she went on that trip. First of all, we do have a bushfire season coming up and she wanted to get away before that happened. Second of all, she also revealed she suffered a medical episode um, back in June when she was uh, up north in Mackay where she had to go to emergency and get tests done. She, she says she's okay now, but every leader deserves a break. I kind of Mm. agree with that, but her poll numbers lately have been falling. Also, there's been a lot of pressure on her and her government to do something about youth crime. Um, Youth crime is in the news in Queensland every single day. And before she went away, a very controversial piece of legislation uh, was rushed through Parliament, which suspends the Human Rights Act to legalise the detention of children in adult prisons and police watch houses and uh, off the record a lot of Labor MPs said they felt really uncomfortable about how all that was done. It does seem like there's a, a strong sort of narrative in the media that her time is running short. Um, the line about, you know, her holiday being comparable to ScoMo's trip to Hawaii just sounds ridiculous. As you said, there's no big emergency happening right now. I do think, though, when when you're a Premier or the Prime Minister, you do need to be careful where you go on holidays. I think a fancy trip to Italy is not a good look. Uh, I think, yes, you need a holiday, but you you got to keep it kind of humble when you're a leader because <laughs> it just opens you up to criticism. And there are plenty of other great places to go on holiday, like the Sundays. Well, this is true, but would we have even known where she was staying had the media not followed her there? She certainly wasn't posting up a storm on Instagram about it. I don't know. I felt really Mm. conflicted about this one. She's been given a lot of shtick in the media for attending red carpet events too. But yeah, I I, I actually feel the media overstepped the line on this one. And Apple is set to ditch the lightning power port in its iPhones and replace it with a USB-C port. Um, This is Pretty much good news, I would say. So the new iPhone 15 set to launch tomorrow morning, our time. And after 11 years of Apple's unique lightning power port, um, it seems like it'll be all over. And that's because Apple's been forced to get in line with the rest of the industry by the European Union that said from late next year, all phones sold in the European bloc must have a USB-C connector so people don't have to buy different power cords for different gadgets. Now, the reason I say, Katrina, this is more or less good news. It's, it is good news. It's just that I only just bought another iPhone. 
<laughs> I know you've only just upgraded. So I'm stuck. Yeah. Look, the other thing about this that I'm excited about is you always get a better camera and they have said, I mean, this is the problem with these. There's always so many leaks beforehand that by the time it's announced, there's nothing that new or exciting. But one of the other leaks is that the camera is going to be a lot better and they're going to have a telephoto zoom lens for the first time. I don't know how much that will get used, but anything that makes my camera better, I'm excited about. And what do you think of the lightning power port and the fact that EU has forced them to get with the rest of the industry? Well, sucked in, Apple, because that has caused everybody a lot of annoyance and grief for so long. So this clearly shows that they could have done something about this a long time ago, but just chose not to. Yep, I agree. All right, catch you later, Katrina. I'm about to interview Chanel Contos. The last time we spoke to Chanel Contos here on The Briefing was two years ago, right as she was making global headlines. And this was all happening because one of her Instagram posts sparked a wave of revelations. Over 6,000 people shared stories of teenage sexual coercion and assault, all in Sydney's private school scene. And she shared those stories to highlight how our schools were failing to properly teach us about consent. She started a petition called Teach Us Consent, which was signed by over 44,000 people. And it worked. Our political leaders, all the way up to the Prime Minister, met with her in person, and the work began to change the way we teach consent in our schools. She's written a book now called Consent Laid Bare, and she's working with Julie Gillard's Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Chanel, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks for having me, Tom. Did you ever imagine this is where your life would take you? Absolutely not. I think, yeah, no. (laughs) I don't know what I thought it looked like, but definitely not like this. So there was a certain point where what were private conversations between you and your friends and also memories of your own teenage years, which were probably also quite private, suddenly became public and sparked this wave of sharing of similar stories from other young women that you grew up with and either knew personally or one or two degrees of separation in the Sydney private school scene. So so tell us how that exploded. It basically started with me posting on Instagram saying, have you or has anyone close to you ever been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney? So it was very specific at mm. first. And it was quite funny because I remember I had to ask people to send in the first few testimonies because... I knew of my friends who had had these sort of experiences and I thought, you know, they may want to contribute to the campaign, so I'll reach out to them. And they did. And then after those first kind of like seven testimonies were up there publicly, they just came in so quickly, got to a point where I was getting Instagram DMs quicker than I could reload or read them. So even though the official teacher's consent numbers are, I think it's 6,600 or something that we've published... I'm so convinced there are still thousands in my Instagram DMs that I've still never seen. And can you share with us some of the stories that people were were telling? And also, it was about their experience, but what the perpetrator was doing now mm. in their lives, which also sent a very strong message. Yeah, so <laughs> that was when baby Chanel didn't know what defamation was and didn't know that <laughs> the um, law is often weaponized against women to silence them on these sort of topics. But the what they do now was really interesting because I guess the whole point of the teacher's consent campaign was 
that it tried to highlight how normalised and pervasive these behaviours were Mm. and it tried to highlight that the perpetrators of these acts have gone on to be completely normal, functioning and respected members of our society. And I think the Teachers' Consent Campaign, the type of testimonies that came in, pretty much all of them described peer-on-peer teenage sexual assault experiences most of them just described coercion um, being used as an avenue to result in a sexual assault. And almost all of them came alongside, I mean, because they were on the campaign website, it was by default this, but alongside the strong message that they felt preventable with consent education. Mm. And so part of what you were doing there and part of what you're still doing through the book is breaking the stereotype of what sexual assault looks like because... A lot of us still have this this false narrative that it's a stranger attack, that it's some horrible criminal person that we would never relate to or deal with or know in our own personal life, a real other sort of character, not someone we might know or go to school with or work with, and not in the kinds of scenarios that were coming out. These were stories of teenage parties, um, you know, all the different sort of things that happen around a school life, in particular in an elite school life. So tell us about those scenarios people were reporting from and the kinds of assaults that were being opened up here. I think because our society has a very strict stereotype of what a rapist is, what a sexual assault is meant to look and feel like and the processes around that, that are just completely different to the vast majority of experiences of sexual assault. It Having that otherness, having that stereotype being upheld kind of discredits and puts a lot of disbelief around all of those other situations. And I think the thing that is really important to understand with a lot of these testimonies that came through is, yes, a lot of them were people, you know, preying on individuals and going after specific people, but also a lot of them were people that you were happily and consensually kissing at the beginning of the night but at the end of the night, you never had any intention to do anything further with them or have sex with them. And I think that adds a layer of complication when it's confusing that someone that you may have positive feelings towards or went to school with or grew up with has done something that ultimately dehumanises you. So something's gone wrong in that process that starts out consensually, that is enjoyable, to being in a place where it's not, it's coercive, potentially criminal, something that can really traumatise someone for the rest of their lives. So what goes wrong there and what do we want to change? Teenagers and young adults and also everyone, but I guess this book is more applicable to the kind of younger, early formative sexual year experiences. Teenagers have sexualities. They often do want to be experimenting with those in a health and safety way. What goes wrong is we haven't allowed them to experiment with that in a healthy and safe way. We've made it so that their main form of sex education for young people in Australia is often pornography, which is so often explicitly violent towards women and girls and has lots of other sort of problematic themes like racism, incest, violence. And we've kind of just created the situation where we've given young people, absolutely no tools, no education, no overt conversations about these sort of topics and then let them go free and it's kind of like, well, what else can we expect to happen for those people? Mm. So what needs to change is we need to have explicit conversations with young people about what consent is, what not consent is, what this means, 
we need to embed empathy in the way that they engage in sexual situations so that this isn't some confusing thing they have to, you know, call back on their PDHP lesson, but an inherent trait in themselves that they would never put their own sexual entitlement above the desires of another person. There's lots of layers of complexity all the way from we need to explicitly say these sort of things, definitions, language is powerful, knowledge is powerful, all the way down to how can we embed empathy in the next generation of Australians, especially young Australian boys, to ensure that doing something that counts as an act of sexual assault would be completely different from the current social contract. Mm. So these are big things that go beyond specifically sexual assault. We're just talking about empathy as a broad concept, understanding what someone is consenting to in any kind of situation, you know, especially a sexual encounter. So what does the education program you've helped bring into schools actually look like? I mean, the amazing thing about this story is that the politicians actually listened to you and did something about it. <laughs> so that was great. But how early does it start? How broad do you go? At what point do you get to the tougher conversations around sexual assault and rape? How do you make this work at the right point in someone's life? So the Australian curriculum that we pushed to mandate consent education in was completely informed by evidence base and experts in terms of what's age appropriate, what's important, what, what comes when. And essentially from the from kindergarten, so from the age of five, concepts of consent start being taught, but not in a sexual way in terms of saying, can I please play with your toy? Can I touch your hair? Um, do you want to go to the canteen with me? Like explaining that asking these sort of questions counts as acts of consent. And what's really important in those younger years is not only teaching young people how to seek consent, but teaching young people how to deny consent and how to accept denial of consent. Those are kind of the two like most crucial things. As children in Australia get older, they will start learning about different types of power imbalances, including gendered ones, so understanding that, you know, our society means that things may be different for boys and girls and how age and gender can come into play when trying to negotiate equal terms. And then by the time they're in high school and consent is taught in an explicitly sexual way alongside their sex ed saying, hey, this is how you put a condom on a banana and also you need Mm. to ask to do it. By the time it is being taught in an explicitly sexual way in those high school years, the concepts of consent are just inherent in them. It makes sense. Mm. They've had these conversations about asking, denying, seeking permission from when they're a young age. What I think the Australian education system is going to be incredible at doing now that consent is mandated in the curriculum is putting in that baseline, these are the legal definitions of sexual assault, this is what you can't do, you need consent, this is what you can do, blah, 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 blah. What it can't do is we can't expect an Australian curriculum or a high school teacher to teach a young person empathy. That is where parents need to really step up to ensure that they are growing up a child who cares for another person's comfort and who will ensure they never put their own desires before another's in a sexual situation. So part of this crazy journey you've been on in the last few years has been to now work with the former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, um, in her Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Tell us about the work you're doing there and what what that's been like for you. So, yeah, it's been an incredible opportunity to work there. Um, Obviously, Julia Gillard is a massive (laughs) idol of mine and... At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, I'm heading up the Global Youth Committee, which is 
basically we're actually about to announce exactly who they are soon, but it's 17 young individuals who are literally phenomenal from around Australia and the APAC region. And we're also going to have a global committee based in the Northern Hemisphere, mainly out of London. And then those committees will meet once a year as well. But it's basically trying to bridge the gap between young people and the policies that are made that define their lives and that we will live out. So it's trying to have a two-way relationship as well. How do a lot of these issues around gender, um, consent, empathy and relationships impact those other areas of young people's lives that you're working to improve through this new position? Ultimately, the reason we have such widespread instances of sexual assault in Australia is because we have strict understandings and expectations of gender and therefore what respective sexuality should be to that. And these problematic gender stereotypes, you know, women pick lower pay jobs or, you know, that's a good job for a woman, all these sort of things, they all lead into the same sort of idea that may inhibit a woman's career, future, leadership potential. And I mean, if we're also talking about, again, like leadership and sexual assault, the barriers that women experience in the workplace, especially young women, the rates of sexual harassment in the workplace, how those can tangibly and intangibly contribute to career progression or hindering career progression, I should say. I think that basically we live in a patriarchy and under this patriarchy, every sort of microaggression that reasserts gender hierarchy impacts people across the board in all aspects of life, all the way from an intimate setting of a bedroom to the workplace lunchroom. And when you start understanding that and seeing how those things piece together, you realise that you can't actually split these issues from anything. That was Chanel Contos, who is the founder of Teach Us Consent, and she has a new book that encapsulates all those thoughts and all the research she's done on this topic and the amazing work that's happened so far. The book is called Consent Laid Bare. Listener.